Last Sunday was an awesome day, and um, if you missed that, um, I don't know what I can do. <laughs> Great day as we observe the Lord's Supper as well as believers' baptism. I want to take a moment and pray before we get started because I think this message is going to be uh, something you need to hear, okay? Pray with me. Father, for just a moment, I want to just thank you for letting us come into this place, and I want to thank you for being here, joining us with your presence. We know, Lord, that your spirit, the Holy Spirit, dwells where your people dwell. As we come into this room today, Lord, we ask you to receive our worship and our praise, but also, God, to speak to us. We need to hear from you. As a people, we need to hear you speak. As a nation, Lord, we need to hear you speak. Father, I'm not so sure that it's a problem with your being able to speak. I think it's that we're not able to hear. We're too busy. We don't slow down long enough, Lord, I think, sometimes to hear what you're saying. God, I pray that you'll gather our attention this morning. And in the process, I pray that you'll draw us to you. We give you permission to do whatever you desire to do, Lord. In fact, we ask, we plead with you. Please, Lord, may your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to begin this morning by going back and looking at Peter's sermon that he preached in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. If you remember, we were looking at that a couple of weeks ago. It was a very powerful message spoken to a people who had a huge problem. And one of the things I've learned about life is that a lot of times people have problems and don't realize they have problems. Some of you've got problems and you don't know that you've got a problem. And I hope today if that's going to apply to you that you will listen very carefully and you'll respond and you'll take home what you need from being in God's house today. Acts chapter 2 verse 36 Luke writes, so let it be clearly known, and this is a part of Peter's message. He's speaking to a huge crowd of people that day in Jerusalem. He says, let it be clearly known by everyone in Israel that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. What Peter's saying is the, the person named Jesus that you killed, God exalted. You wanted him dead, and God wanted him alive. He wanted him on the throne. You wanted to put him in the ground, and God said, no, I want him back with me in heaven. And, and everything that Peter said in that message, and we don't have everything that he said, but we've got a good portion of it, brought conviction, and especially this last statement. And verse 37 said, Peter's words convicted them deeply. And they said to him and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter rightly accused the Jewish people of crucifying God's Messiah. He was spot on with every word that he spoke. You got to stop thinking about it. Jesus was God's one and only son and they killed him. Boy, you want to pick a fight, do that. He was their only hope of salvation. He's the only one God was ever going to send. There was no plan B. Peter clearly pointed out their great sin. He spoke truth. And so truth plus the working of the Holy Spirit brought deep conviction to their soul. And it said in another translation that Peter's words pierced their heart. Pierced their heart. Can you imagine running a spear through your heart? Greater than that. They were so convicted that their heart was just on fire. 
As you can clearly see from this passage of scripture, the Holy Spirit was working through a very powerful message that Peter preached, so much so that it brought the crowd to a point of desperation. I mean, they realized they were in serious trouble here. It was also a point of decision. They, they had to get off the fence. They had to make a decision based on what Peter had said. And so they responded, brothers, what should we do? Now, can I say that that is a really great question to ask. Brothers, what should I do? Um, it's probably the most important question that you could ever ask. What do you do when God convicts you of personal sin? I'd like to think that we do what we need to do with it. But oftentimes I think we just ignore it or we shuffle it away and we don't pay any attention to what God's trying to say. But I want you to look at how Peter answers the question and I want you to pay very close attention to this because I think it's applicable to each of us in this room. In verse 38 it said, Peter replied, each of you, he's talking to a crowd of thousands but he gets very specific here and he says, each of you must turn from your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to notice that there's only one right answer to the question they ask and that answer is you must repent. You must repent. Repentance is a turning away from sin and self, and it's also a turning to God. It is a change of purpose. It's a change of, of heart. It's a change of direction. Um, it's change. And, and I know in a Baptist church, that's a dirty word, change. But that's what God's calling for is change. Think with me here for a moment. It's obvious that the people who heard Peter's message were afraid of being judged by the now living Messiah who they had murdered, but he's now alive. But, but true repentance involves far more than fear of consequences. Albert Barnes writes that false repentance dreads the consequence of sin. We, we dread getting caught. We dread getting punished or being punished. We dread the cost that it might cost us if we get our hand caught in the cookie jar. But he goes on to say that true repentance, true repentance dreads sin itself. So it's not just the fear of getting caught or the fear of consequences that really matters, but it's the fear of being enslaved to sin. It's the fear of offending God with our sin. True repentance therefore hates what sin really is. It is an affront to Almighty God. It's offending God when we sin. John MacArthur says knowing that sin is evil and that God hates it motivates the truly repentant person to forsake it. Genuine repentance thus forsakes sin and turns in total commitment to Jesus Christ. Dr. Ted Trailer says there is a key element to Christianity that's found here in Acts 2.38 and many churches and many in the church today have lost sight of it. He goes on to say it's the word repentance and I'd like to just correct him there. I don't think it's the word. I think it's the practice of repentance. And we need to reclaim it. We, we need to be responsible with it. It says when, pen, when people turn from their sin and pursue God, a wonderful transformation occurs. A perverse generation can be changed and made holy. If ever we've needed repentance, it's today. I had a lady years ago that I led to Christ, looked me in the eye, and I'd been talking about lostness and being saved and about the need for repentance. And she looked at me and she said, I have been in church all of my life and I've never heard those three words, lost, saved, the need to repent. She said, why have I never heard that? I said, it probably has something to do with where you've been going to church. Folks, when true repentance occurs, it literally changes your life. 
It always strengthens the body of Christ and it always unites the church when there's repentance. When you truly repent, your heart becomes full of humility and joy and sincerity and you'll become generous with the praise that you raise to the Lord and and you'll begin to see lost people being drawn to Jesus and there'll be some exciting opportunities for evangelism. To say that repentance is not necessary for salvation is a gross and dangerous misunderstanding of the word of God. That's why it's so critical for us to understand just how sinful that we are. Folks, we are all sinners to the very core of our being. I want you to notice that repentance is a turning away from sin, a turning away from self. But the turning away that you need to do is not possible unless you first turn to Jesus. You don't have the strength to turn away from sin and self without Jesus to help you. You have to trust him. You have to lean on him and, and, and turn to him. I, I, I always, when I'm talking to someone about salvation, I look for conviction. And I, I've talked to people before about about salvation and, and saw no conviction and I knew right up front they weren't going to get saved. There's got to be conviction from God above. There's also got to be true repentance from us below and there's got to be a trusting of Jesus to make us right with God. You cannot be right with God apart from knowing Jesus Christ. It's impossible. I don't care what you try to do. You'll never be able to be right with God until you trust Jesus. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, for if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. He didn't say Buddha or Confucius or anybody else. He said Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And notice he didn't say Jesus is Savior. He said Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Peter said Jesus is the only one who can save people. His name is the only power in the world that God has, that has been given to save people. We must be saved through him. We all need Jesus. We don't need just a dose of Jesus. We need Jesus. Now, that being said, let's look again at what Peter says next. Going back to verse 38, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Says Peter replied, each of you must turn from your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, let me caution you. You have to be very careful here to interpret this passage in light of the rest of what the Bible teaches about forgiveness and salvation. Peter is not saying that you have to be baptized to be forgiven and saved. That's not what this verse teaches because that's not what the rest of the Bible teaches. If you remember the thief on the cross that spoke to Jesus in desperation in those last minutes with what last few breaths he had, he said, remember me. And Jesus perceived that his heart was crying out to him. Why? Because it was. That repentant thief never joined First Baptist Church Jerusalem. He never went to Sunday school. He never gave a tithe. He was never baptized. Why? Because he was kind of tied up on the cross and that's where he died. But that same day of his death, he was with Jesus in paradise because of the promise that Jesus made to a repentant sinner. If you read it, it says, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The word for here can also be translated to mean on account of or because of or on the basis of. And so I personally think that a better translation would be something like this. Because you have been forgiven, he's talking to a Christian here, because you have been forgiven, you should identify with Christ by being baptized in the name of Jesus. In other words, you need to go public with your faith. 
You see, Peter is clearly not allowing for any secret disciples with what he's saying here. To be baptized in the name of Jesus is to personally identify with Jesus and not only personally and privately, but publicly. In Jesus' day, there was very limited amount of water in Jerusalem. And when you were baptized in the city of Jerusalem, you had to go where the water was. And guess what? Everybody else was there getting water. They did that all day long. They came and they went and they came and they went with their water pots and their water skins. And so if you were baptized in, let's say, the pool of Siloam, you were probably among hundreds, maybe thousands trying to get water. How do you do that privately? You don't. It's public when you're baptized. And it's done for a reason that way. John MacArthur says baptism would mark a public break with Judaism. In other words, you're leaving Judaism, that old religion that you were involved in, and you're starting something new. He says it's a break with Judaism and an identification with Jesus Christ. Such a drastic act would help weed out any conversions that were not genuine. In sharp contrast to many modern gospel presentations, Peter made accepting Christ difficult, not easy. I can relate to that. To be baptized in the name of Jesus means that you've responded to Jesus in faith. It means that You have confessed Jesus as your Savior, and you have submitted to Jesus as the Lord of your life. So to be baptized in the name of Jesus is to identify with Jesus as being one of his disciples, as being a part of his church. You know, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the good news about Christ. If you're baptized out in the public, that certainly solves that problem. He says, I'm not ashamed of the good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, Jews first and also Gentiles. Baptism is not an act of salvation. It's a symbol of the relationship that you have with Jesus. It's just like the wedding ring that I wear is a symbol of my being married to Miss Joyce. Folks, I wear my wedding ring because I'm not ashamed of my wife. And bless God, she's got one too. She's not ashamed of me on most days. (laughs) I'm not ashamed that you know I belong to her and I'm not ashamed that you know I belong to Jesus. Now I want you to notice something else. Note also that when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Savior of your life, at that very moment, You are forgiven and saved and you're also cleansed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Peter goes on to say, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. David in Psalms 51 says to God, and it's a cry out from his heart. He said, purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Guys, we we all sin. And that sin stains our soul. We have all sinned and we have all received those stains and we all need to be washed by the blood of Christ. Now, you can't see the stains on your soul, but God can. God sees them very clearly. And as long as there are stains on your soul, Jesus cannot and he will not enter your soul or your heart as we sometimes refer to it. We read this verse last week and I've shared it several times. Isaiah 118, God speaks through the prophet and says, come now, let us argue about this. Let us reason this out. Let's debate the issue. You and me, God says. Isn't it amazing that God would want to debate or have a conversation with us as individuals? I think it is. What if God called you up and said, hey, I want to have coffee with you? I'd be scared to death. But look at what the prophet says. God is speaking here. Because it says, says the Lord. 
He says, no matter how deep the stain of your sins, I can remove it. Praise God. I can make you as clean as fresh fallen snow. Even if you were stained as red as crimson, I can make you as white as wool. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus has to clean all the sin stains off our soul before he moves in. You might move into a house that's half finished or dirty, but Jesus doesn't. He's going to clean you up before he moves in. Why? Because he's a holy God. He's a holy God. Hebrews 9 says, under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow could cleanse people's bodies. Notice that. Bodies from ritual defilement. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our hearts, our our souls from the deeds that lead to death so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. After you've been cleansed by the blood of Christ and only after, that is when he moves in. The Holy Spirit, the good thing about that is that once he cleans you, he moves in and he stays there. The Holy Spirit comes to live in every believer at the moment of salvation. Are you hearing me? How do I know that? Well, there's several scriptures, but there's one in particular. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 and verse 10 says, and he's speaking to the Christians there in Rome when Paul writes this. He said, but you're not controlled by your sinful nature. You're not supposed to be. You still have a sin nature, but you're not supposed to be controlled by it. He says, you are controlled by the spirit if you have the spirit of God living in you. And in parentheses, he says, and remember that those who do not have the spirit of Christ, that's the Holy Spirit living in them are not Christians at all. In other words, if the Holy Spirit's not in you, you better do a spiritual check because you're not a believer. You've never been saved. If you've been saved, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. Verse 10 says, since Christ lives within you, even though your body will die because of sin, your spirit is alive because you've been made right with God. I, uh, I went home last Sunday exhausted my back was even strained (laughs) Miss Deborah you wore me out last week I love you she stiffened up and I'm trying to get her under the water and her head got about halfway into the water and it was like it ain't going any further and I go oh yes it is If I have to dive on top of you, you're going under the water. (laughs) And I pushed, and I think we missed her head by about a half an inch on the back of the baptistry. But we got her under. She was totally wet. (laughs) Praise God. It's beautiful when you see believers being baptized and, and growing in the Lord and being hungry for God. I thank God for that group that we baptized last week. There are people that have confessed their sins to God. They have come to faith in Christ. They've trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And because of that, they've been forgiven and saved, washed, and they've received the gift of eternal life. And they've also uh, been indwelt by the Holy Spirit that's come to live inside of them through the person of the Holy Spirit. And uh, being baptized, they have fully identified with Jesus Christ. And it is my hope and prayer that what they did was an act of completely committing themselves to Jesus because that's what we're supposed to do. I know this. They got all of God last, last week. And in fact, they had all of God before they went in the water. God may not have all of them yet, but he, he's going to get that. 
He's working on them, I promise. I, I, I think it's an awesome thing to see God at work, don't you? To see God be God and the church be the church. I love to see God at work through the church. I love to see his people joining him in that work. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I was thinking as I was putting this message together to uh, some words that Dr. Landrum P. Level once spoke. He was the past president of, Southern Bad, or of the New Orleans uh, Seminary, New Orleans Baptist Seminary. He, he made this statement, and I, and I know it may not mean much to you, but I, the first time I heard it, it resonated and stayed. He said, evangelism is not complete until the evangelized becomes the evangelist. Now you think about that. I've taken that serious in that the work that I have to do is not complete until you know how to share your faith with others that need to know about Jesus. That, that, that's what this is saying. It doesn't mean you're all going to have the gift of evangelism, but you do have a witness. Amen? Acts 1.8 says you will be a witness if you get saved. And you're to share that witness. You're to tell your story. Every opportunity you have. And uh, I, I pray that in your lifetime, and you, you know, this is a challenge. In your lifetime, if you would just lead one person to Jesus, think of the, the effect that would have on our country. Just one. I promise you, leading people to faith in Christ is like eating Lay's potato chips. If you do it once, you're going to do it twice. <laughs> you can't eat just one, can you? No. Look at what else uh, Dr. Luke says next here. He reminds us of a beautiful promise. He said, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The, he said, this promise is for you and to your children and even to the Gentiles, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Peter is telling them that this marvelous gift of the Holy Spirit is not just for the people that were in the crowd that day. He says, it is for your children as well. For future generations of Jewish people, the next generation and the next generation. But he also says it is for those who are far off. The New Living Translation says, even for Gentiles. Now, he's just included everybody on the planet because if, if you were a Jew, everybody else was a Gentile. And he says it's for everybody. Isn't it a beautiful thing that anybody and everybody can be saved? That's what scripture teaches. In Ephesians chapter two, verse 11, it says, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders by birth. You were called the uncircumcised ones by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were ex excluded from God's people, Israel, and you did not know the promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. Y'all see that statement? You lived in this world without God and without hope. My guess is that's where 80% of the world is living. Without God and without hope. In verse 13, he says, but now you belong to Christ Jesus Though you once were far away from God, now you have been brought near to him because of the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has made peace between the Jews and you Gentiles by making us all one people. He has broken down the wall of hostility that used to separate us. By his death, he ended the whole system of Jewish law that excluded the Gentiles. His purpose was to make peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new person or one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death and our hostility toward each other was put to death. 
He has been brought, or he has brought this good news of peace uh, to you Gentiles who were far away from him and to us Jews who were near. Now all of us, both Jews and Gentiles, may come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. He says, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. The promise that he made here in this passage of scripture some 2,000 years ago is still in effect today. And it's for anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Anyone in the world can be saved through faith in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Now, look at what else he says here. The last thing that Dr. Luke records from Peter's message in verse 40. It says, then Peter continued preaching for a long time. Strongly urging all his listeners Save yourself from this crooked generation. Now, Luke only gives us a synopsis of this sermon. It's most likely that his sermon on the day of Pentecost lasted for hours. Mine doesn't last that long, but some of you are already asleep. I'm kidding. Peter uh, engaged even with them later after the sermon was over in a dialogue, I'm sure, uh, he started by telling them the truth of God's word. He urged them to put their trust in Jesus Christ. He also strongly urged them to save themselves from the crooked generation of their day. The, in, in the minds of the apostles, the people from which they came, the, the nation of Israel was considered to be very corrupt and, and very crooked as a generation. Can you imagine what Peter would say about Washington, D.C. today? It's not just Washington, it's all across the nation. Guys, I never realized how crooked government is. God help us. But you know what? Peter wasn't the first to condemn a crooked nation. Listen to what Jesus said. He said only an evil and faithless generation would ask for a miraculous sign. But the only sign that I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so I, the son of man, will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Notice verse 41. He said, the people of Nineveh will rise up against this generation on judgment day and condemn them because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now someone greater than Jonah is here and you refuse to repent. In verse 42, it says the queen of Sheba will also rise up against this generation on judgment day and will condemn it because she came from a distant land to hear the wisdom of Solomon and now someone greater than Solomon is here and you refuse to listen to him. Two witnesses that will speak against the nation of Israel. Folks, what Peter said, what he's sharing is, is so true in that message about Israel being um, an enemy to God, about them being rebellious to God. What Jesus says right here in this passage of scripture is, is words that were, were spoken and recorded for us to be able to read today. Why? Because they're, they're not just words that are flippant. They're, they're prophetic words and they were words that God spoke and, and then made happen. If you do your homework, you'll see that Israel was about 40 years before Rome uh, would come and completely destroy that city, would destroy that beautiful temple and scatter the people all over where, everywhere. But history was, was about, when he spoke this, about to repeat itself. It wasn't the first time that God had passed judgment on the people. If you remember, the children of Israel wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years until every male who was over the age of 20 that left together in Egypt had died. 
Not a one of them were allowed to enter the promised land. Thousands upon thousands died in the wilderness because of their rebellion against God. You see, God doesn't play with sin. He's serious. And God was about to purge the nation of those rebellious people who uh, uh, had crucified his son and, re and rejected Jesus. So when you, when you look at what, what Jesus was saying, the nation of Israel had about 40 years to repent. About 40 years of grace before something was going to happen to them. And praise God, on the day of Pentecost, those people who heard, at least 3,000 of those who heard Peter's message, they took advantage of that age of grace and, and they were saved. They repented of their sin. They turned away from their sin and they turned back to God and they put their trust in Jesus Christ uh, to make things right between them and God. And verse 41 uh, tells us that. It says, those who believed what Peter said, which was the content of his message, they were baptized and added to the church and about, there was about 3,000 in all. Bob, what would you do if you preached and 3,000 people got saved? I'd have a heart attack. I'd take 30. Can you imagine... 3,000 people out of a crowd of maybe 10, 15, 20,000 people getting saved. There were 3,000 people that day that listened very carefully to Peter's message. They accepted and they believed what Peter preached to be the truth. They accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and they were saved. And 3,000 were baptized by immersion and they were added to the church that day. As I was reading this the other day, it dawned on me, you know, what's truly amazing about all of this is the ethnic diversity of that 3,000 conversions, the ethnic diversity. If you don't believe me, look, look at Acts chapter 2, verse 5. It says, at the time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. Parthians, verse 9 says, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, in the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the area of Libya towards Serene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. There were people everywhere. And I'm sure that that ethnic diversity was well represented in that group of 3,000 new believers and it would only continue to grow as time went on. Verse 47 says, and each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Rick Warren talks about this passage of scripture by writing these words and he says, you know, you're called to belong and not just believe. Even in the perfect sinless environment of Eden, God said it is not good for a man to be alone. He says we are created for community, we're fashioned for fellowship, we are formed for a family, and none of us can fulfill God's purpose by ourselves. He goes on to say the Bible knows nothing of solitary saints or spiritual hermits isolated from other believers and deprived of fellowship. He says the Bible, that, the Bible says that we are put together, joined together, built together, members together, heirs together, fitted together, held together. We will be caught up together. You are not your own anymore. He says while your relationship with Christ is personal, God never intended for it to be, for it to be private. In God's family, you are connected to every other believer and we will belong to each other for eternity. My words are get used to it because it's gonna be that way in heaven. Paul says it is with Christ, so it is with Christ's body. We're all parts of his one body and each of us has a different work to do. And since we all, we're all one body in Christ, we belong to each other and each of us needs all the others. 
He writes in Ephesians 2.19, Now you are no longer strangers to God and foreigners in heaven, but you are members of God's very own family, citizens of God's country, and you belong in God's household with every other Christian. What's Paul saying? He's saying, you need to find yourself a church. You're part of the kingdom, but you need to find that local fellowship of believers and get involved in what God's doing in that church. Folks, the life that we live as Christians involves far more than believing. It includes belonging. And listen, you grow the most in Christ when you're responsible in relationship with other Christians. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, these words. Be devoted to one another. Be devoted to one another. Who are you devoted to? Well, you need to be devoted to God first, amen? But he also said be devoted to other believers. Take serious your relationship. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, he says. I, uh, I've said many times that I think God has a real sense of humor to make us so different and then to call us together as Christians and put us under one roof and, and expect us to live together and get along and be in unity. He's got to have a sense of humor, right? Because <laughs> it's so hard for us to do that, is it not? We're, we're different people. Thank God you're not all like me. Are you? Who said that? I, I'll second that. Shirley thirds it. Listen to what Tony Evans wrote. He says, sometimes it is easy for people to be united in a church. Perhaps they share similar personalities or come from a similar part of town and share similar interests. However, other times it is difficult for people to be united in a church because they may come from different backgrounds. And there are times when unity just doesn't seem to be natural. More times than not, it doesn't seem to be natural. Why? Because it's not. When you're so different to be together, you know, I read this years ago about marriage. God puts two people together in marriage, and marriage is like heavenly sandpaper. And the more they live together, the more that, you know, their personalities rub each other. And God uses that relationship of marriage to sand us and shape us into the person He wants us to be. Some of us need to change the grit of the sandpaper. You ever heard the old phrase, water and oil doesn't mix? You ever tried to mix water and oil? They won't mix. Well, you can shake them up all you want to, but they're going to go right back and be apart. There's a great example that we eat every day. Mayonnaise. Mayonnaise. Two of the primary ingredients of mayonnaise is soybean oil and water. In order for them to mix, an emulsifier is needed. There has to be an ingredient that you add that reaches out to the water and reaches out to the oil and binds them together so that they don't go their own way and remain separate. And what's amazing is that emulsifier is just a simple egg. Put an egg in there and the two come together. The egg reaches out to the water and it reaches out to the oil and it says, we're going to come together. Why? Because we're going to make some mayonnaise. <laughs> By the way, I like Duke mayonnaise. We sang a song earlier that talked about God providing and doing what he wants done. My experience as a Christian is that God always provides for what he expects to achieve. 
In other words, he always makes a way for his will to be accomplished among his people. If he asks you to do something, he gives you the, will, the ability to do that. Well, guess what? He wants us to be united, doesn't he? Amen? Together. Well, on our own, that is impossible to do. That is why he provided the Holy Spirit to be that divine emulsifier. To bring us together and hold us together so that we don't go our own separate way. He alone has the power to bind us together from different backgrounds into one family of God. He brings us together from different backgrounds, from different ethnic groups and with different personalities and different interests so that we can treat each other as family. Folks, the Holy Spirit makes it possible for that to happen. Unity cannot be achieved without the Holy Spirit. I doubt very seriously you've ever heard of this man's name, J. Roy Weber. You ever heard of J. Roy Weber? Past president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Godly man, I've heard him speak. He is now with the Lord. But he loved the church and he understood something about the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he wrote. Keep in mind, he wrote this over... 30 years ago. He, like me and a lot of others, we, we sang a song today, Sin Revival, or about revival. I know this man prayed for revival. He said, today's church is like a basketball referee. While standing in the middle of the court with a whistle in his mouth, someone comes along Slaps him, slaps him on the back, causing him to swallow the whistle. And then he's seen going around in circles, stamping his feet, coughing and stammering, neither able to direct the game nor stop the action. The typical and average or normal church fulfills a like role in its community, neither able to give direction and, and, and meaning to, to the lives of the people around it, nor to stop the marching of multitudes into eternity unprepared to meet God. He said, today's church reminds me of the New Testament church on the eve of Pentecost. She had been given a constituency and a commission and a Christ, but lacked the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the task. He says, it's like owning a fine new luxury automobile and not having the fuel to make it run, whether in a church or an automobile, only when the fire is added does the action become possible. He said, we have everything we need in facilities, in fellowship, and in faculties, but we're not winning our world to Jesus Christ because we lack the power. When the church experienced Pentecostal power, she went out to conquer the known world in one generation. That's the way the church functioned, empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you'd asked them, they would have told you, we're going to win our world to Christ in my lifetime. How about us? How many of us even know if the Holy Spirit lives in us? Would we know the difference between someone else's word and the word of God if it was spoken to us? How many of us truly are being led every day of our life by the Holy Spirit? Or do we just get up in the morning and we do what we always do? Because that's what we've always done. I'm a firm believer that until I let the Holy Spirit have complete control of my life, I will never reach my full potential and neither will you. Folks, it's time we get serious with God. And we give him that 100% of ourself. He's already given himself 100% for us. We need to give ourselves totally to the, to the life and the work of the Lord. But that's a big decision to make. You see, we like, we like to give God just a certain amount. And then we like to hang on to the rest 
and we're not willing to be totally and fully committed to the will of God. But my, my experience tells me that we will never become who God intends for us to be until we do totally surrender ourselves and allow the Holy Spirit to take over. He's already in us if we're believers. But we, like, we have to let him guide our life and empower our life. Where are you in that mix? Do you have the Holy Spirit living in you? Are you a believer? And if you are a believer and you have the Holy Spirit, are you letting him control your life? Who, who's, driving, who's driving your ship? You or God? A lot of questions. Guys, we've got to look inside. We've got to see what God's trying to do. And we've got to decide what we want. God's way or our way. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, my prayer is short. I think we already know Based on things that have happened this week, we know who's in charge of our lives. We know if we've prayed, we know if we've opened your word and let your word speak to us. We know if we've taken time for you in our life this week or if we've just been running full blazes ahead doing whatever we need to do and want to do. God, you desire to be intimate with us and close to us. You desire to guide our life and shape our life into the image of your son. And Lord, only when we allow the Holy Spirit to take control will that ever happen. Father, I'm asking you this morning to do a work in each of us. And that work has to begin with conviction. Lord, we need to be a convicted generation. We need to be convicted about our own personal sins first. Because, Lord, when we sin against you, we hurt you. And it should shame us to live in sin. God, start with us. And if you choose to move beyond us today, God, bring that revival that we need desperately to our nation. Lord, work first in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me this morning? Will you think about what I've said? Will you think about what the Holy Spirit and God's Word has said to you today? Because they work together to bring about the change that desperately needs to happen in our hearts. I confess to you that I am not there yet. But I am trying every day to give God more and more of my life. And I pray that you'll take that same approach. Got to do something today though. Got to be a turnaround. That's what repentance is. Will you come? Altar's open. Come talk to God. If you need me, I'm here. But do business with the Lord. You come.